So I don't know if you guys know this or not, but um, Jackie Bittner moved away and she told me to say hi. Okay, one, two, three. When I say three, everybody say hi, Jackie and Phil all at the same time, and we'll try and get it on, on the microphone. You ready? One, two, three. Hi, Jackie and Phil. Okay, we just made her week right there. Actually, what I was going to say is, maybe you don't realize this, but today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is those uh, four Sundays that come before Christmas as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior, the incarnation, the, the God-becoming-man part of our faith. And I kind of like that, and I'll tell you why I like it, because as far as I know, the church is the only place we are going to get a spiritual spin on the holidays and not some kind of consumeristic mumbo-jumbo. For the world, Christmas started with Black Friday, and uh, they call it that because it's the day that retailers go from being in the red to being in the black, hopefully, but it's all about materialism and consumerism and me, 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 and my, 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 and now, 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 to quote Hook from that great movie of the same name. So at the church, we try and do things a bit differently. We try and focus on the real meaning of Christmas. It's always a challenge for us pastors because you really don't want to talk about the birth of baby Jesus four weeks out of the year every year. I mean, the incarnation is an important part of our faith, but I'm not so sure it's one-twelfth of everything we need to know every year. And so over the years, I've tried many creative ways to usher in the Christmas season. A lot of you have known about the Urban Sky Advent Guides that we've used for the last several years, and we've kind of used all of them up to this point, and so had to come up with something new and different. So I want to try and preach the whole counsel of God at SCUM on Sundays. I want to talk, if I'm going to talk about one thing over and over and over again, it's going to be the resurrection, I think more than the Incarnation, although the Incarnation is important. So in the past, we've done sermon series on the left out of Christmas. We talked about the Magi, who were like New Age magicians who came to worship Christ, probably not welcomed in a lot of churches nowadays. We talked about the shepherds, who were the left out of society. Their vote didn't even count in court. Their testimony wouldn't even count in court In those days, we had sermon series on the ancestry of Jesus, specifically the women in the ancestry of Jesus, and that was like an R rated sermon series. We called it Christmas at Grandma's House. (laughs) We've done things like that. Well, this year, decided to do something a bit different. I'm taking what really is a secondary character in the whole nativity story and trying to focus on that character for the next four weeks. I think there's a lot that we can mine 
from the rich deposits that God has put inside of this person who doesn't even have a speaking part, really, during the Christmas story. This person is a guy, he's kind of a solid figure, and he's there. A man of very, very few words, none as far as the Gospels are concerned, but of great action. And as I was thinking about this character, I started thinking about the heroes that have gone before. How many people here have ever read uh, Joseph Conrad's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces? Or Chris Vogler's uh, book uh, of a similar title, The Writer's Journey, The Hero's Journey? All right. Well, you know this already. You know this already. So let's put that slide up. Next slide. There we go. All right. No back. Thank you. That's great. So this is the first section of the hero's journey. It's kind of a mythic, archetypal transition in, through life. And you see it in Old Testament characters. You see them in New Testament characters. You see them in Greek mythology. You see them in other kinds of literature throughout the ages. Um, there's this embedded truth in our understanding of what it takes to be a hero. And, and I honestly think that God has placed it there that he has put eternity in our hearts, that there is this thing called general revelation that is given to all men and women about what's really true. And I would say, if it's true, it's from God. All truth is God's truth. doesn't matter if it's being spoken by a pagan. We've come to worship him, for we saw his star rising. Remember, those words were spoken by the Magi as they came to worship Jesus. They were proclaiming him as the king. True words out of pagan mouths. It doesn't matter if truth comes from a donkey in Scripture. Because a donkey has been known to speak and to correct prophets. So, we're going to talk about this great archetypal journey for the next four weeks, the hero's journey. And and you know this. You know this from everyday stories and culture. So let's talk for a minute about one of the great myths of our generation, Star Wars. All right? Star Wars. Almost lockstep in pattern with this. When we first watch the movie, there is an ordinary world going on. And the ordinary world is this. There is an empire that rules the galaxy. It's an evil empire. There's a small but valiant rebellion that is trying to wage battle against the empire for control of the galaxy. And we even get more specifically focused on young Luke Skywalker, who is being raised on a farm on the planet Tatooine, and I don't know how to pronounce it, and it's got two moons, I remember that much, two suns, oh well, 
Okay. There were two globes in the sky. That's what I remember. Two suns. And Luke leads a pretty ordinary life. He helps his uncle and his aunt around the ranch, the farm, whatever you want to call it. But he likes to dabble in scrap metal. And so we have this ordinary world, and then something always interrupts the ordinary world, which is called the call to adventure. And in that particular movie, he finds this piece of old robot called R2-D2, and he's tinkering with it, and all of a sudden this hologram shoots out of this robot that is a message to somebody named Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, please come help us. That kind of sets you off onto the story. Now, there's an initial call to the hero to come and help, but the hero refuses initially. And Luke is a wimp. He is kind of a whiny little kid who doesn't really want to do much. But through the help of the meeting he has with a mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, he decides to then cross the threshold into the great adventure. His life is never the same. Same pattern we see in Lord of the Rings with Frodo. Frodo is part of the Shire, a peaceful people. They like to eat and they like to dance and like to um, tell stories. And then something happens. There's a call to adventure. All of a sudden, there's this ring. He's got to do something with it. It belonged to his uncle. Now his uncle is leaving it in his charge because his uncle is going off to be with the elves. Frodo doesn't really want to do anything with the ring. He'd like to just put it away in a chest and leave it there. But he can't, really, because Gandalf shows up. The meeting with the mentor happens. And Frodo realizes what he must do. And really, honestly, he can't stay where he is because the dark riders are coming after him anyway. And so he takes off in this great adventure. He crosses the threshold into the rest of the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, this happens in Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) Sandra Bullock's character is content going to the toll booth. Who? Who is it? Oh, I'm sorry. While you were sleeping. While you were sleeping. You know, you guys, I'm glad that you're awake tonight. We can do this sermon together, I think, honestly. While you were sleeping, she's going to the toll booth every day. That's her ordinary world. And then something crazy happens, right? There's a call to adventure. She has to save this guy. And the next thing you know, after a few things happen, she's off into this adventure. So it's, it's a very common theme embedded deep within us. And I thought, you know... This really does, in some ways, even though he's a secondary character, typify the life of Joseph the carpenter, the stepfather of Jesus. And so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and we're going to begin reading the beginning of the hero's journey for Joseph. 
Remember, great journeys begin with great interruptions. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Joseph is living an ordinary life. He's a young man, because most men in Israel at that time got married young. The rabbis told them they should get married young, so they wouldn't burn with lust. The Apostle Paul didn't come up with that all by himself. It was part of his culture. He is set to marry a young girl, probably between the ages of 13 and 16, somewhere in there. And there was a betrothal ceremony. A betrothal actually wasn't even quite a ceremony. You had to have a couple witnesses there, and usually the young man or the young woman agreed on the potential union, and so they became betrothed. Now, they had to wait a full year until they got married. But that was the first part of the whole marriage process was the betrothal, the engagement. It was a very, very serious matter. As a matter of fact, it was so serious that uh, if you wanted to call the marriage off, it was a divorce. And so Joseph's in, let's say, the middle of this betrothal period to this very, very young girl. He's probably just a few years older than her. And we don't know how, but he finds out that she's pregnant. Now, Mary found out by a visit from the angel Gabriel, but, uh, but Joseph had to find out some other way. We imagine that Mary told him. The interesting thing is, is that back in those days, they probably didn't spend hardly any time alone together even if they were engaged. There was a chaperone close by. So one would figure if it was her parents, her parents would know, and the three of them would come and tell Joseph what was going on. And so his world is rocked. All right? His plans are totally interrupted. What is he going to do? The end of ordinary life has happened to Joseph. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You see, if Joseph married a pregnant fiancée, that probably would have been a tacit admission of his own guilt that they had come together before they were supposed to. It would have been a great shame upon himself and upon his bride. And so he decides to put her away quietly. Like the law back in Moses' day said that you could stone such women for adultery. But honestly, it really wasn't done much by the first century. And all you needed for divorce was a couple of witnesses again and to issue a, a, a writ of divorce. And so he was going to do this to try and make it as easy on Mary as possible because the truth be told, if she had a baby outside of wedlock, she probably would never, ever get married. 
And when her parents died, she would have no means of support because she was a woman. And so he is trying to make the best of a bad situation and decided to put her away quietly, to divorce her quietly. Let's think about Joseph's feelings for a while here. I would imagine that the initial feeling is one of shock. My parents have known your parents for a long time. This is an arranged marriage. Never would have expected this from someone from your relations. How can this be? Are you sure? I mean, all those stages of grief probably happened, right? There was some fear. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? Maybe some anger. How could she do this to me? Who did this to her? What could I do to that person for messing up my ordinary life? Hmm. We don't usually think about Joseph in these terms, do we? He's such a secondary character in the nativity story, but he's such a hero in my eyes. He decides to exercise mercy. He could have justice, but he decides to be merciful at this particular junction. I'm thinking, what a marvelous guy this is. How do I make this as easy as possible for all concerned? How do I not just worry about my own reputation? How do I take care of her and her family? Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is pretty much the same name as uh, Joshua. Fairly common Hebrew name, but it means God is salvation. So Joseph has this ordinary life. He has this call on his life. His life is severely interrupted, and there's a call on his life. And his initial reaction is to refuse the call. I'm not having any part of this in terms of being married to a woman who is unfaithful. Um, I don't believe her story because such a thing has never happened before. And so he refuses the call, but then there is this meeting with the mentor that happens An angel appears to him in a dream. And the angel recognizes Joseph's place as the head of the family. He says, you know what? You're going to name him Jesus. You. I'm recognizing you as the husband of Mary and as the stepfather of the child. Verse 21. 
Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through his prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph crosses the threshold. He takes the first step of this long journey. This journey which is going to affect everything about him for the rest of his life. And not just his life, but the life of every person on the earth for as long as the earth remains. An event that has such impact and power, it not only impacts people who come after Joseph, but eventually will impact people who have come before him. This great interruption in his life has given way to the greatest adventure he could ever imagine, more than he could imagine. And he's a secondary character. Jesus is the primary character. The beginning of the passage, this is how the birth of Jesus took place. He's the primary character. Joseph secondary. But what a secondary character he is. A hero in his own right. He's a pretty upstanding dude. Because normally in a Jewish boy's mind... Growing up, he knew that he would become engaged, wait for a year, have a ceremony at his wedding, and then on the first of a seven-night wedding feast, he would be expected to consummate that wedding. And the wedding really wasn't complete until you consummated the wedding sexually on that first night. If he's like most young men, he'd been looking forward to this for about as long as he was alive. And yet, the Bible tells us that he did not exercise his right as a young husband. He did not give in to his urges as a young man. But he had the strength of care to refrain himself from having sexual relations with his bride until after she had given birth to the Christ child. This guy is awesome. New Testament stud, 101, please. Alex, for 200. Joseph the carpenter. Matthew wants to make Mary's virgin birth unambiguous. And so he lets us know that Joseph refrained until after she was born. You know, um, there's some brothers and sisters that we have in the Christian churches who believe that Mary was ever virgin. I think it's one of the reasons that they usually portray in the nativity crushes as Joseph is this really old codger, you know, <laughs> who would probably never be interested in having sex with a, you know, 15-year-old anyway, 16-year-old. Because they want to make sure that Mary stays virgin forever and ever. Amen. Those are my Greek Orthodox brothers and those are my Catholic brothers. 
and sisters who believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that because I think the easiest reading of the passage says they had sex after Jesus was born. Other places in the gospel talk about Jesus' brothers and sisters and things like that. I also don't think God is that mean or cruel. (laughs) Especially to such a great guy. Just don't. Now, trust me, Mary is a hero in her own right. Probably in terms of the story, a much more central character. She has lines in this play, you know. And she has multiple appearances in various scenes. Joseph is kind of all bunched there at the beginning, and then we don't hear about Joseph later on. Probably died when Jesus, well, before Jesus turned 30. But usually when we see pictures of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, we, we see Mary with a quiet, you know, serene smile and Joseph's, you know, very solid, very solemn, you know, very protective there in the nativity scene, right? And I'm thinking, these two young people are going, what the hell is going on around here? We just had a baby. He's the Christ child. I just don't know. what. How are we supposed to raise a little God? How do we do that? Their life is like spinning out of control. It's already begun to spin out of control. I mean, Joseph's marrying a girl is already pregnant with God's kid. I mean, he's got to be thinking, how do I, I can't imagine a perfect teenager. How is this going to work? Like, how am I going to, I mean, is this kid going to be, going to be raising me? How do I do this? You know, we all go through life interruptions like this. We're in the ordinary world, and then something strange happens, like you lose a job. Something weird happens, like your parents move across the country. Something highly unusual happens, like you meet the man or woman of your dreams, and your life is never the same again. Maybe you get involved on a mission trip, and you go there, one person, and you come back a totally different person. Your life will never be the same because of what you have seen in the mission trip. The deprivation, the squalor, the famine, the disease, the helplessness, the hopelessness. The way the rest of the world ignores that problem. You have been wrecked for ordinary life forever. In every biblical conversion, there is a mission attached to that conversion. The idea that in the American church, we can somehow be converted to an ideology, to a theology, that we can have a mental ascent, okay, I didn't believe this before, and now I believe that, and now I'm a Christian, end of story. That's ridiculous American garbage. It's only part of the story. 
is the very, very first part of the story, maybe. For some people, it might be at the end of the story, but it doesn't matter. It's only a part because when God calls somebody, he calls that person to an adventure, to a mission. You're not just called to a body of doctrine. And he means to upset your life forever. The drama of biblical conversion is never limited to the safe struggle between doubt and belief in Christian doctrines. Rather, it always involves the extraordinary process of creating visionary apostles out of fearful disciples. So says Craig Barnes. I would agree. We are all on a hero's journey. All of us. We're going to explore that this Advent season. But I'm telling you, we're all secondary characters in the great movement of Jesus in history. And when he calls you to be part of something, it's not just to be believers. It is to be believers and doers, to be part of whatever it is he's doing on the earth. And usually that's going to start with some kind of massive, inconvenient interruption to your normal life. I can't think of a time in Scripture where God has spoken to someone and then said at the end, it's okay, just when you know I'm here, you know, go, go about your normal business. Um, you and me, we're like this. Love you. Bye. Normally, it's preceded by something like, don't be afraid. Now go do this. And life as you knew it was over. I'm talking more than about your job. Your job can be part of your calling to adventure, but it certainly doesn't have to be all of it. I'm not just calling about whether you're a dad or a mom or whether you're a husband or a wife. That can be part of your calling, but certainly not all of it. I'm calling about who you are and everything you do. It's not just about what you're called to be. It's about what you're called to do. You can't have one without the other. God interrupts our lives to take us on a hero's journey. It is seldom convenient. It is often distressing. It is usually difficult. It's always wonderful later when you look back on it I remember one time we were having Thanksgiving at my house and Ben Mercer was over and my cell phone rang now if you're a pastor and your cell phone rings on the holidays you usually don't answer it but I had a young junior high aged boy in my house who was fascinated by my cell phone and decided he was going to answer it for me. As I said, no, 
no, don't pick up the phone. Leave it alone. And it was a call from the great Pacific Northwest, a former scum guy, who was crying to me over the phone that his wife, a former scum girl, a matter of fact, a girl who had come to Christ at scum, had been arrested for trespassing some years before. I guess there was an outstanding warrant for her arrest. And they were taking her to the county seat for jail, which was like, you know, a hundred miles from where they were in this little town in the Northwest. He goes, Mike, I've got two babies at home. I don't have money for bail. Can you help out? I'm thinking, it's Thanksgiving. Nobody is open. How do you expect me to get the money there? And he had persuaded some dude at a local 7-Eleven who had this Western Union kiosk to stay open later than he would normally stay open on Thanksgiving in order to receive the funds that would come from Denver. And so Ben and I ran, for the next three hours, we ran around town trying to get money Somehow, I can't remember how we did it now, but we finally got it wired. We found some Western Union place that was open here, and they wired it. And, you know, she was able at least to go home and be with her babies and take care of them until the trial date. It was an interruption. It was not convenient. It was not an epic journey for me or for Ben Mercer, but let me tell you, it was a huge, giant deal to those little kids and to that young husband, not to mention the girl who had been trespassing years before. Here's the interesting thing. God, in this passage, knows Joseph calls him by name, through the angel in the dream. More than that, he knows Joseph's fears. And he addresses both of those in the call to adventure. That's comforting, isn't it? That God would know our names... And know what makes us afraid enter into the journey that he has for us to take. In the movie Fiddler on the Roof, Tevia, the main character, has this one song called If I Were a Rich Man. And at the end of the song, he cries out, Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? There's no bit players in God's kingdom. There is a vast eternal plan in getting a young mother out of jail for a time is somehow part of it. Your response matters. 
Interruptions are going to come in your life. And what I want you to realize is when interruptions come in your life, you have to stop and figure out whether or not God is up to something. Have you been asleep? Do you know what's going on? And if you wake up, what is God saying to you? And if you accomplish the journey, who will benefit? Go to that last slide if you would. Three questions I want to leave you with today. Is God trying to wake you out of your ordinary life? And have you been sleeping? Is he trying to shake you up? Is he intentionally disrupting your life or allowing disruptions to happen so that you can go on some kind of great adventure with him? This goes pretty far. What is God up to when he lets these kinds of things happen? When you go to the hospital and the diagnosis is not what you had hoped for, that's a pretty big interruption that God allowed to have in your life. What if you go to work one day and they tell you not to come back? That's a pretty big interruption. What if your spouse says, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back? That's a pretty big interruption too. Could it be that maybe somewhere hidden in the disruption of your ordinary life is a call from God to follow him deeper and to begin a hero's journey, which may be for some the final hero's journey? If the diagnosis is terminal. I have gone to the bedsides of seasoned old saints. Not so much here at uh, Scum of the Earth, but back when I was at Corona. I did a few hospital calls to people who were in their last days and they knew it. And the faith that filled that hospital room put my young, exuberant, virile faith to shame. They were with Jesus on the journey. They were crossing the final threshold of the great adventure. Let us tune our ears to what God may be saying to us through these interruptions. And let's not just look at ourselves, but let's consider others who may benefit from us going on this journey. The same way that Frodo realized that all of Middle Earth was hanging like a weight around his neck as he took the ring to its final doom. 
when the very life of the rebellion is hanging in the balance on that one shot that Luke Skywalker has at the weakness in the Death Star. When God calls you on your journey, whether it's something that happens every day a little bit or whether it's some giant thing, will you respond? And will people benefit from your response? I want to end by doing a little directed prayer. So I'm going to say something and there's going to be a period of silence. I'm going to pray some more and there'll be another period of silence. I'll pray a third time and there'll be one more period of silence and then we'll close. Okay? So please bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. Lord God, we are are sorry if we have been ignoring your interruptions into our ordinary lives. We are sorry for being asleep while you're trying to get our attention. And so right now, Lord, bring to our minds those interruptions which we need to bring before you as possible invitations on a journey. Let us consider them now, Lord. And Lord, open our ears that we may hear your voice and do what you say. Allow us to not only listen to you, but to obey your words. Lord, what is it you're trying to say to us about those interruptions? And what is it you want us to do? We take time to listen and prepare our hearts right now. Lord, last of all, tell us who is it that's going to benefit from our answering this call? If we cross the threshold under this great journey, Lord, who is it that we're going to help? Please bring that to our minds right now.
Lord, we give you full permission to continue this discussion later on. Help us to hear and obey. Thank you for interrupting our lives and inviting us into your great adventure. In Jesus' name, amen.